comedy junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 286 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Intel microprocessor episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out that back on the 1st of February, 1982, Intel introduced a 16-bit microprocessor called the Intel 80286, or as you in the computer world, might commonly refer to as the 286. Yes, the actual microprocessor that really started bringing people into the fold and proved the domination of what would become the home computer started back then. And I thought you would like to know. So yes, with that wonderful little bit of 286 knowledge from Intel, I of course am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee... Tim! How are you doing, Matt? Eh, kind of tired. Really? Got the house to myself. Kids are off camping with the, with, I don't know what the fuck they're doing. They, they, went, they went to Galveston to go camping on the beach. Ooh, really? Did they bring jellyfish protection? I have no idea if they brought KY jelly protection or not. They're probably a little young for that. Oh, you haven't had the talk with the kids about proper protection from the jellyfish? Nope. They're with adults. We're going to pretend that the adults know what they're doing. So, like, did it take you a while to feel comfortable with letting your wife go off with the kids to do their own thing? Or is this a question that I probably should ask your wife if she felt comfortable allowing you to take the kids to do your own thing? No, that's probably one of the few areas of our marriage that Jen and I have actually done very, very well. We have a, we've had a very good division of labor when it came to the kids. So when I want to take the kids out for daddy daughter dates or let Jen go off with her friends because she needs a night out, never a problem. It's just an automatic thing. When Jen wants to take the girls and they go off and do their thing like they're doing right now, me, I'm like, sweet, get the house to myself. And then of course the kids love it because they get family time with the whole family and then of course they get just mommy time and they get just daddy time and then of course we also do as i mentioned the individual you know daddy daughter date or the mommy daughter date thing so yeah so i you know we've never had that because i mean come on what what parent in their right mind doesn't just need a little bit of time off well i get my daddy maddie time at least once a week for about an hour and a half to two hours. I feel pretty special about that. I have that in common with your three daughters. It's true. <laughs> At least I hope with your daughters, you don't talk about in depth with them, you know, about movie pass or fapping or no. the lack of I, fapping. Okay. I am, I am one of those weird people who believes that if you just take time to be and or do with your children that you can, that they, they can be relatively well-adjusted people. You know, my kids have not seen rated R movies yet. Not even my oldest. She's not seen a rated R movie, period. Why? Because we monitor that kind of stuff. Not because we're against it. Clearly, we're not. But, you know, innocence to a certain degree 
once it's gone, it's gone. And so I want to protect it. I want to shield my kids from that kind of stuff. We're very picky about the PG-13 movies that the kids get to watch. And they watch very few of those. Generally, it's just Marvel movies that they get to watch. So, you know, now that my oldest child, she's turning 11. So, we're, you know, she's moving into junior high school or middle school, I guess is what they call it around here. So, yeah, so we know that she's about to be inundated with more serious topics and other kids whose parents are, shall we say, more free with the content that they get to watch, right, wrong, or indifferent. So, you know, we're going to be starting to watch, you know, more adult movies and stuff with her, you know, and, and harder PG-13 stuff. We've already started talking about those kinds of things, you know, just because we feel that that's the right thing to do. By more adult movies, you're not talking about Bodacious Butts 83. Correct. There, okay. there will be no bullets, bombs, and babes, you know, movies coming at us here. Uh, it's, it's no Malibu Express action by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> we'll probably start doing movies like Adventures in Babysitting, you know, where there's, where, where they're chasing around a Playboy magazine and, you know, don't fuck with the Lords of Death kind of shit. So, you know, that kind of thing. It's like Eminem. Everybody gives Eminem a hard time about all this stuff. And he's like, you know, I don't let my daughter listen to my music. <laughs> this was, of course, years ago. He's like, I don't let my daughter listen to my music because my my music's not appropriate for kids. You know? So you should be good parents. Monitor what your children are doing. And, you know, so it's kind of the same. And if it's good enough for Eminem, by God, it's good enough for me. Thank you, Marshall Mathers. Do you have an R-rated movie on deck that you would like to be the first R-rated movie that your kid watches, your oldest kid watches? Nine and a half weeks? No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I guess it would probably... Realistically, I would think maybe perhaps like Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan or something like that. Oh, that's good. At least it's not Boogie Nights. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I would want, I would want to showcase something with an R rating that is still truly proper good cinema. Like, and that's not to say that Boogie Nights isn't a good movie. It is. But I would want it to be something serious, something with a hard tone, so that you can see where, like, it's, it is, it is language. It is violence to a certain degree. Um, and even where there's sexualization possible in certain themes and issues, I would want that to be displayed mainly because I want to be there so that I can help explain these kinds of things. I can, you know, answer any questions, but at the same time, uh, fully showcase what the R rating has to offer that, that means that it's both not for kids, but still quality. And so it would be something like that. I don't know if it would absolutely be one of those movies, but it would probably be something like that. I would like to curate this this weekend of films because I'm thinking you started off with Schindler's List for your little R-rated movie fest, mm -hmm. and the follow-up has got to be Passion of the Christ. <laughs> well, okay. I don't and know. And maybe some I... Sophie's Choice after that. If it's well, I mean, R. if we're going to do that, maybe we could do them in chronological order by history. So we would do Passion of the Christ first, followed by Sophie's Choice, followed by Schindler's List. Does that, does that work? 
Well, I guess, well, I, no, I don't know. I, don't, I can't. I'm not sure if what came first, Sophie's choice holy, or the It's not list. the Holy Trinity. It's the Holy Trilogy now. No. Uh, well, I would assume that the that that Sophie's choice would have to be before Schindler's List because Schindler's List goes all the way through the end of the war. Right. But at any rate, no. I mean, I don't know because I'm kind of in a in a in a weird religious aspect. Uh, it, it, I don't know. I kind of appreciate what Mel Gibson was doing with Passion of the Christ, mainly because for those who truly believe in the Bible and for uh, the Christian faith, that is a, you know, you always hear, and it's always thrown over people, Christ died for your sins, and Christ, and yet there's never really been an accurate depiction on film of what he actually went through. And I, so I at least applaud where Mel Gibson's head was at in trying to demonstrate to Christians and to people of faith what Christ went through when, so that when people say he died for your sins, it wasn't just, you know, ho-hum, well, it looks like I'm having a really bad Easter, but don't worry, three days from now it's going to be great. Apocalypto would be uh, a good one to show violence, how uh, effective violence is used in a film. That's another good one. Yeah, I would I would agree. So, see, there's a lot of really good R-rated movies out there. Oh, for sure. Oh, totally. I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, that that's how I made the transition. I just watched really I was always exposed to really good. I mean, well, growing up, I watched a lot of heavy PG-13 movies but because my parents were semi-young by the time they had me, and they were into watching movies, my dad, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was big, so of course, I had my True Lies and <laughs> Total Recall movies. Granted, those aren't serious dramas, but they are well-made action films that were right. a good storytelling product, and it wasn't just bullshit for the sake of showing bullshit and again and i also want to be able to showcase what the world really has to offer right as much as i want to shelter my kids you know as best as i can i also want to make sure that i'm not you know helicopter parenting and or overdoing it so my kids uh, you know absolutely like my oldest daughter again absolutely loves doctor who and she knows who captain jack harkness is right she you know so she's she's already seen you know, uh, homosexual couples, gay couples, lesbian couples, and stuff like that. Um, and I want my kids exposed to that kind of stuff because I'm not going to sit there and pretend like the world is, uh, insert, I don't know, generic Brady Bunch or Leave it to Beaver, whatever the hell kind of crap, right? Hannah Montana bullshit. Um, you know, the world is complicated and kids need to, you know, kids need to be able to see and understand these kinds of things and be and be aware of the world around them and how diverse it is and how awesome that that is. So, you know, so I want to make sure again, I just want to make sure they get the right stuff. You know, so um, fun times. Wait, what a good, wholesome way to kill 10 minutes. <laughs> We're working out your family, you know, uh, your family goals. Your parenting goals. Well, then, how about we do some news? What do you say? Ooh, yes. There we go, folks. It's the news. Hey, 
So first up from me, from CartoonBrew.com, by way of Amid Amidi. Uh, animation workers set to receive $170 million payout from wage theft lawsuit. Now, this came out back on my birthday last week, which was Wednesday of last week, the 27th. Uh, we're recording on the uh, 2nd of July, for those who are interested. Uh, after more than a year of waiting, animation workers will soon receive the first payment from the $170 million settlement they won from various animation studios. The class action lawsuit against the studios alleged long-term wage theft and antitrust violations. Yeah! So there's actually a website for it, if you'd like to go check it out. The uh, website actually says here, I'm going to take a quote from it. It says, a letter will accompany this distribution, informing the class members that this is the first of two distributions and is approximately half of their total distribution. The letter will also identify the class members, quote, work state, end quote, for tax purposes, pursuant to the data provided to the claims administrated by the defendants, and provide instructions on how to correct the work state by July 31st, 2018, if it is not correct. The second distribution and the remaining proceeds will be made in August 2018 and will include the tax documents reflecting any updated work state. And that is ending the quote for the website, which means they're getting the first payment now. Next payment comes next month. So what's happening is the money itself is coming from the Walt Disney Company uh, slash Pixar slash Lucasfilm slash Image Movers Digital, which settled for $100 million, DreamWorks Animation, which settled for $50 million, Sony Pictures, which settled for $13 million, and 21st Century Fox-owned Blue Sky Studios, which settled for $5.95 million. Most animation workers who were employed at those companies between 2004 and 2010 qualified to receive a portion of the settlement. And you can, of course, go back to that website and find the list of qualifying job titles as well. It says that the lawsuit was sparked after it became clear that animation studios had colluded for years to set salary limits and avoid hiring artists from other studios, thereby circumventing the free market for the skills and talents of their employees. The plaintiffs in the lawsuit presented substantial evidence that implicated Walt Disney and Pixar Animation Studios President Ed Catmull as a ringleader of the illegal wage-fixing scheme. The Walt Disney Company has done nothing to reprimand or punish Catmull for his questionable actions, and he continues to serve as the leader for both Disney and Pixar Animation Studios. Yeah. Um, so that is the bulk of that article there. You are, of course, welcome to read the entire thing and its comment section. Uh, so, Tim, you think maybe this is why Lasseter has been kept on very quietly, so they can shift as much blame to him? by the end of the year, and say, nope, it wasn't Catmull, it was Lasseter. Maybe so, but really, <laughs> it it's a shame. I mean, I hate animation, especially over the past 10, 15 years, has become a very competitive thing within a company, movie studio. Disney has always done pretty well, especially within the past 20 years with animation, Warner Brothers has struggled. Sony has struggled with quality animated animated films, especially. So I I, I get it. They want to cut the corners, cut costs. But when you're cutting costs and not paying people what they deserve and what they owe, the artists, the people, the storytellers, the creative type are going to become disenchanted with what they love and either quit doing it 
and you're going to have to, and these studios are going to have to bring on people that aren't really the most creative and thoughtful type when it comes to animation storytelling, or these people are just going to quit caring and become, again, disenchanted. It sucks. I mean, the principles of the whole matter just suck. So, I don't know. It's kind of reminded me in some way about what they did with special effects and whatnot, where Warner Brothers was outsourcing all the special effects from Canada because it was just becoming too costly to use the special effects houses that they've been using here in the United States. So, and that created a big issue, and that's still going on now, which actually reminds me, I kind of want to look back into it to see how things are now, probably about five years after the fact when that documentary came out. I'm glad that the the majority of the affected people have found justice, but sadly, I think it's just too little too late. They'll just shift the work overseas. Oh, Uh, totally. Whatever they haven't will just increase more going overseas, which kind of sucks. Um. But uh, but at the end of the day, I'm glad that I'm glad that they got caught, and I'm glad that this is getting taken care of, and I hope that it doesn't happen again. And that's where I'm at on that, sir. So uh, what what why don't you lay on some news for us, sir? So I forgot during the pre-show was one of your pieces of news that this uh, sci-fi wire article that you sent me, the Star Wars standalone cancellation movie news no no i i just thought it was kind of interesting stuff because um everything that's being reported in there i it, there's not a whole lot of uh substantiated information it's still majority rumor but even still i liked i, I liked the the balanced take on it and i just thought there was some really cool information you know just really cool tidbits of information and stuff that were in there Well, I'm going to read a little bit of it. I'd like to hear what you think. Sure. Via sci-fi wire dot... Actually, no, it's sci-fi dot com. An article written by Brian Young entitled, It's Not As Bad As You Think, Breaking Down the Star Wars Standalone Cancellation News. Updated, as of now, I guess. And this was published on June 21st. It's been reported that Lucasfilm is putting all of its Star Wars standalone films on hold in the wake of Solo A Star Wars Story's less-than-stellar performance. Collider originated the report, and they credit anonymous sources with knowledge of the situation, which could mean almost anything. Instead, Collider continues, Lucasfilm will opt to, quote, focus their attention on Star Wars episode... 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9... And what the next trilogy of Star Wars films will be after that film, end quote. If true, this could mean a lot of things for Star Wars, but why don't we take stock of what we know for sure and try to determine if these rumors are really as galaxy-shaking as they seem to be? Uh, And this is one of the updates that they made on the article. Lucasfilm gave a bit of an ambiguous statement to ABC News, with the network reporting that, quote, there are still multiple Star Wars films currently in development that have not been officially announced, end quote, which actually feeds into our read on the situation below. And jumping back into what they previously had said here on the article, this report from Collider is predicted itself on anonymous rumors from inside the industry that rumored 
Obi-Wan Kenobi film was just that, a rumor fueled by fan excitement over unconfirmed reports. Trade publications like The Hollywood Reporter did report that James Mangold was in early talks for a film they believed to be a Boba Fett standalone, but the official Lucasfilm apparatus has been silent on these issues. What Lucasfilm has announced are two big screen trilogies, one that will be brought to life by Rian Johnson and another that has David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, the showrunners behind Game of Thrones, at the helm. This report from Collider doesn't actually do anything but confirm that Lucasfilm's unconfirmed projects are still in some sort of limbo and that its confirmed projects are moving forward, which makes me believe this news is a lot to do about nothing. After Solo, it makes sense that Lucasfilm and its president, Kathleen Kennedy, would take a step back, see what's worked and what hasn't, and then tailor its strategy to new information. With Episode 9 still over 500 days away, and the next film at least 365 beyond that, it's easy to assume that the Star Wars film premieres in 2021 might still be up in the air. With the exception of Josh Trank's ill-fated Boba Fett standalone, Lucasfilm has made every film it's announced. For Lucasfilm to come up with a Marvel-style rollout strategy while it has the time and the breathing room to do so makes a lot of sense. This would give the company time to develop the rumored standalones enough as to avoid the public issues seen with the now-famous reshoots for Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, and Solo. The way this news is being framed by many outlets is that Lucasfilm has spread itself too thin by working on too many projects, but that doesn't seem to be the way things work over there. When the company hires a creative to work on a Star Wars film, that creative brings with them their production team. J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot has only worked on the films he's worked on, with a crew of his choice. Each filmmaker brings on the team they want, so the idea that Lucasfilm would be spread too thin working on different projects doesn't make a lot, a whole lot of sense. Lucasfilm scales to the needs of each individual project and brings on however many people are needed to make it work. That's true even if it occurs late in the game, like bringing in Tony Gilroy or Ron Howard, why would Mangold need to stop work on his alleged film in order for J.J. Abrams to focus on episode 9? It's just a silly idea. And the article goes on from there. Matt, I do want to know, do you think it would be smart for Star Wars, or, or Lucasfilm, to abandon the Star Wars standalone films? Uh, should they even wait until Episode Nine is released so they can close out the trilogy before they begin dabbling in these standalone films? Oh, yeah. I, I'm a big fan of the idea that we just go back to movies every two or three years. I think that um, we have enough content at this point that things that could be considered standalone projects could be shuffled to Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, or the upcoming Disney on, you know, whatever, Disney Flicks, whatever the fuck they're going to call it. Um, so that you can get an, so that you can still keep the brand awareness alive. And bring new people into the fold and keep the merchandising in place and have people looking forward to, you know, uh, uh, the new Star Wars land, right? That's coming to Disneyland, um, next year or actually like Christmas of this year and, uh, June of next year for Walt Disney World. So, I mean, 
there's enough out there to keep all those things going without having to have movies all the fucking time. I really just think we've kind of hit the threshold where let let's just let's just focus on our on our saga. Now, if you want to end the saga as as such, you want to end the Skywalker saga with episode 9, awesome. And then let's pick up a new trilogy that starts a new saga. And maybe that saga could go for nine movies. Or maybe that saga just goes for three movies. And and then we can do other things so that you're constantly world building and you're constantly bringing in new ideas and new things to do. Well, that's great. But you don't have to do a fucking movie every year. So I really just think that that was the biggest problem is that I don't even think, I quite frankly don't even think Solo would have done as poorly, air quotes, poorly, because all things considered, it's still doing, you know, decent business. If they had just waited two years to put it out. Um, and then, and then let episode nine be three years away or something. I don't know. Um, I, I like what they say in the article. Um, I don't think you specifically read this part of the article, but um, part there's part in the article where they talk about let Lucasfilm just go back to being to, to to doing what it does best, storytelling. And that's that's what we need now. We need good stories. So let's finish up episode nine. Let's get this fucking dumpster fire done. And then, for the love of God, let's let's start something new. Um, and anything else that you want to have fun with, you want to do a Boba Fett movie, you want to do a Obi Wan Kenobi series, and stuff. Like, well, move that into the world of digital distribution, and let that be its own, like uh, like the Defenders that they that they've done on Netflix. That's been hugely popular and very successful on that end. Do something akin to that in the Star Wars universe, where you have Boba Fett, and you have who knows whomever, and you have Gornak the Perfect or something like that. And then they all come together, and they gotta go beat Jabba's cousin. I don't know. Um, something like that. Whatever the fuck. I don't care. That's all I have to say about that, which is probably way too much. Whenever you mention to a rabid Star Wars fan or... This is brought up to a Lucasfilm higher up. You should just wait every two years. Put out the movies pertaining to the story that you're focusing on, the trilogy that you're focusing on, before you start going down these other avenues. Though a lot of people will come back to say, well, look at Marvel. Marvel comes out with two to three movies every year, and look how wildly popular they are. On the surface, they're absolutely right, but... There's more diversity with Marvel characters. You have people up in space. You have characters strictly, you know, that do shit on Earth. It's easy to put a couple of these characters together and make a movie out of those couple characters doing shit. You know? I mean, there's a lot more stuff to play around with. And it even took Marvel to figure out how to make that work and still keep these movies feel a little bit fresh. With Star Wars... They, I really think they need to take the higher road, focus on telling great stories, focus on making quality movies, 
and the movie that you put out has to be as best as it could possibly be. And I'm not talking about as best as, as it could possibly be after cramming in three weeks of reshoots at the very last minute to try to piece a really shitty movie together. No, we're not talking about that. Take the time to do it right. Because I guarantee you, if you spend $200 million on a Star Wars movie on the next episode of whatever Star Wars, people are going to, and it's good, people are going to go see it and people are going to go and see the next one. And that is why for episode nine, they're bringing back J.J. Abrams. It's because people are actually going to be excited about that. All right. Well, I'm going to, uh, I've got a really quick one here. I'll just jump in and do this one really fast just for shits and giggles. Uh, from flickeringmyth.com by way of Gary Collinson. It looks like Doom movie reboot wraps production. Yes. As quietly as you, as you may have heard or unquietly, depending on how you look at it, Doom is coming back. By God, they've decided that they're going to make Doom work this time. So whether or not you knew about it, wanted it to happen, or couldn't care less, there's a new Doom movie coming, and it wrapped production. Now, they thought it wrapped production today. Turns out it uh, wrapped production a few weeks ago. So that's how quietly this movie has been moving through production. Whether or not it makes any money will be... um well, it just remains to be seen. But let's just remember very quickly that, uh, according to this article here, Universal's first attempt at bringing Doom to the screen, screen came back in 2005 with Andres uh, Bartakwiak directing a cast that included Carl Urban, Dwayne Johnson, and Rosamund Pike. It was met with negative reception from fans and critics and bombed at the box office with just $56 million worldwide from a $60 million production budget. Um, and I would imagine that 50 of the $56 million was probably from Johnny White Trash trying to get everyone in Canada to go see the movie. Because he likes Doom. Now you know the joke. Ha 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 ha. Was I supposed to laugh? I don't know. <laughs> you know, it, it was more. It was more just a subtle shout out to to our to our friend Johnny White Trash. But but in all but in all seriousness, I I truly could not care less about this. Do you think the world needs another Doom movie, Tim? I didn't even see the original Doom movie, so <laughs> I, I sadly did see the original Doom movie. Uh, I do know that when I saw the original Doom movie, it was like on HBO or something. Okay. So, I, I did not actually go to the theater and see it. Thank God. I just, I mean, I hope it's good. I think the idea of it is cool. It just needs to be a gory, R-rated, monster horror movie a la Pitch Black or shit. The other, the third Riddick movie. Maybe it's just called Riddick. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, I can't remember if it was R-rated or not. But, you know, it, just, it needs to be a fun action monster horror movie. You know, an unsettling movie. And, you know, if you have Dwayne The Rock Johnson in it, it's going to be fun, maybe, but it's not going to pack that punch that it needs. So who's in who's in the remake? Who's in this one? Amy Manson from Once Upon a Time and Luke Allen Gale from Dominion are starring in the cast. And I haven't watched Once Upon a Time in a very long time, so I could not tell you who that is. 
And I don't believe I've ever seen Dominion. So I could not tell you who Luke Allen Gale is. Well, I think this movie is definitely heading in the right direction with <laughs> this well-known cast. Um, the, let's see. The director is uh, Tony Giglio, uh, who directed Timber Falls, Extraction, and Chaos. What? Timber Falls, Extraction, and Chaos. So the director what? of those three movies, Tony Giglio, is the director of Doom. Do we know what Timber Falls... Nope. No idea. Again, don't know what any of these things are. Uh, I'm assuming they're movies. Timber Falls actually might kind of sounds like a TV show, but uh, I don't know. I'm going to assume these are movies. So it looks like this is going to be a very low budget film that uh, with with relatively unknown cast and crew. And so, you know what? Quite frankly, I am actually at least now at least now I hope it's halfway decent. Because uh, even if the budget, let's just say the budget is half of what it originally was, $30 million, um, enough to try and at least get the special effects to be somewhere decent so that they can, you know, make a space movie or some form of fashion. Now I'm at least hoping that we've got some people who really care, who are happy with, you know, working and, you know, they really want to try and put out the best product they can. I still don't know that I want to see it, but I actually am a little bit encouraged by this. So I did a quick little Google search, and for those one of you who might be interested, Johnny, on (laughs) bloodydisgusting.com, they actually have a bunch of pictures, or a number of pictures from the set, published uh, June 5th. Photos from the set of new Doom movies show blood, big guns, and badasses. It looks like, I mean, they actually have sets, like underground sets. Yeah, maybe it could be a fun little B-grade surprise of a movie. Yeah, but will it beat Wolf Cop? That's the question. I know what there's a sequel to Wolf Cop coming I know. out well, called another to watch Wolf that Cop. This year I thought yeah, I thought, you know. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Okay. Well, I you know what, given the time that we've spent uh, on this, I'm just going to call my news. Just call it there. That's my news. What else you got for us, sir? I have two pieces because I am very curious to hear what you have to say about these two. One of them is Disney related, but I'm going to start uh, with this one via the wrap. Hollywood beware. Apple's content harvest dot 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 has begun. Uh, And this here is written by Matt Donnelly and Jennifer Mass. And it says this. Don't let media consolidation, movie pass drama, or the president's Twitter account distract you from one of the biggest stories in Hollywood this summer. The quiet moves Apple is making to do to movies and TV shows, what it once did to cell phones. The tech monolith has ordered almost 20 original shows, a stack of poached and pedigreed executives... A-list collaborators across genres and a reported plan to enter the Oscar race, all set to start rolling out next year. Last week saw a flurry of announcements for scripted series with powerhouse brands like Sesame Workshop. Oprah Winfrey also has an overall deal. Apple's projects will inhabit what insiders predict will be a video platform in the vein of the company's music streaming service. 
The company just added Lane Eskridge, a force behind shows like Ozark at rival Netflix, to work as a creative executive under Apple Worldwide. Video heads Zach Van Amberg and Jamie Ehrlich. They were plucked from Sony and started Apple's $1 billion content shopping spree last June, but Apple's precise plans remain a mystery to many in the Hollywood establishment, according to producers, agents, and Apple competitors who spoke to the rap. Quote, there's a great and powerful Oz kind of vibe about it. They're kind of elusive, like who is running the thing, end quote. Tucked away in an anonymous Culver City office, you'll find Van Amberg and Elric with colleagues, Angelica Guerrera in Latin American programming, and Kim Rosenfield in Unscripted, both transplants from Sony Pictures TV, uh, and yada, 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 yada. Apple is now making their foray into the streaming platform. So who knows, you might have Amazon Prime, Netflix, Hulu Plus, HBO Go, the DC thing where you can go and watch all the DC movies and DC animated movies, DC cartoons, also DC comics. I'm sure, uh, uh, oh yeah, well Marvel is now with Disney, so Disney is going to roll out with their streaming platform. So what it all comes down to, it sounds like things might be a little bit worse than fucking paying for cable. I mean, with if all these things cost $10, well, on top of already paying for internet, and you have 10 different streaming sites that you're going to be subscribing to, in addition to your internet, that's another 100 bucks a month, or however much it's going to be. Matt, what do you think about this? Do you think it's smart for Apple to jump on the bandwagon, or is this going to be just way too much? No, no, of course not. At this point, well, I mean, yeah, you're right, because, let's see, Disney's going to have their own. You have Hulu, and uh, Vudu does their own services where you can actually, but it's movie-based, strictly movie-based, but you can buy into their services now. You've got uh, Amazon Prime, Netflix, um you know, HBO Go, Cinemax, CBS All Access, um, and um, you can actually, uh, through Amazon, you can actually add a la carte Showtime and Stars and CBS All Access and HBO Go. You can actually add all these to your Amazon Prime uh, individually. So... Amazon's already the new Comcast because now you can just pay them directly. And, hey, we, we got you covered. Just pick what you want and we'll put it all here. And that's what's going to end up happening. All these people are going to go off and make their own thing. And then someone's going to say, look, you know, you could pay over $200 a year to all these different channels. You know, or like you're saying, $100 a month to all these different channels. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you just pay me 60 and you can have all these channels. <laughs> and now it's and now it's cable all over again. Um that I, I I highly see that happening within the next ten years. But right now, it absolutely behooves uh Apple because companies like Apple are trying to be holistic. They want they don't want you to just buy the computer. They want you to buy the iMac, they want you to buy the iPad, they want you to have the iPhone. 
and they want you to have your iTunes. Um, and they're struggling right now to a certain extent. Not, I mean, they're not like in trouble, but they're struggling a little bit because with the advent of Pandora, which then in turn brought Spotify, and that's the big thing right now, iHeartRadio, which was formerly, um, uh, oh gosh, Clear Channel Media, they, you know, and, and of course they just recently went into bankruptcy. So you've got all these people. So yeah, it makes absolute sense that Apple would try and do something like this because they want people to completely stay in their family of products. Um, I don't know that it completely signals that everybody's eventually going to just do their own thing. Um, you have to have something worth buying. So, for example, like um, I, I did the YouTube Red thing uh, a couple months ago, and I did the free trial because the only thing I wanted to watch was Cobra Kai, which was fantastic, but literally there was nothing else to to watch, and so I so so I didn't stay beyond the free trial. And next year, I'll pay ten bucks to watch Cobra Kai when it comes out for season two. And then I'll watch that entire season and I'll quit. So even if they only end up with one thing like that, well, sure, they'll still make enough money to produce their one or two shows that they want. And that's ultimately what will end up happening. I, I do think that, yes, within 10 years, we'll see someone come along like a cable operator and say, hey, let me take some of that load off and you can just get all your stuff through us. Amazon's already testing the waters. Just in case you didn't know. And Hulu. Hulu's doing that also. Oh, you can buy all your stuff through Hulu? So you can buy HBO through? Yeah, you can do, I think you can do HBO or Showtime, but I mean, obviously Amazon offers significantly more. Right. Lastly here, real quick, via IndieWire.com, Disney shuts down Disney Toon Studios in Glendale. This is an exclusive for IndieWire, written by Bill Dezowitz, and it was published on June 28th. It says this, on the heels of Pete Docter and Jennifer Lee succeeding John Lasseter as chief creative officers at Pixar and Disney, Disney will now close its third animation studio, the Glendale-based Disney Toon Studios, effective immediately. Disney Toon was best known for the Disney Fairies, Home Entertainment, and Plains theatrical franchises under Lasseter's leadership, with Meredith Roberts serving as senior vice president and general manager since 2008, there will be layoffs of 75 animators and staff, and it is unclear if any will be transitioned to either Disney or Pixar. Quote, after much consideration, we have made the decision to end production activity and close Disney Toon Studios. End quote, said a Disney spokesperson. The move had been in the works and is unrelated to the promotions of Dr. and Lee. An untitled feature about the future of aviation from Clay Hall, who did Planes, and Bob's Ganaway, who did Planes Fire and Rescue, was removed from the theatrical release schedule for March 2019 and is no longer in development. In recent years, the straight-to-DVD and Blu-ray market had obviously dwindled, and it made sense monetarily to shutter Disney Toon. Disney Toon was part of a long-standing Mouse House animated home entertainment studio, spun off from Disney Movie Toons in 2004, with the release of Lion King 1.5 direct-to-video movie in 2004. Noteworthy releases included Mickey's Twice Upon a Christmas, Lilo and Stitch 2, Stitch Has a Glitch, Mulan 2, and Bambi 2. 
Yet Laster brought new life to Disney Toon, first with his support of the six-film Fairies franchise, starting with Tinkerbell in 2008 and concluding with Legend of the Never Beast in 2015, and by launching Planes in 2013 and Planes Fire and Rescue in 2014. End all quotes. There. Now, Matt, what do you think about the closing of Disney Tunes? I always thought the Tinkerbell fairy movies were super popular. I know I had a young cousin who was obsessed with all those movies, and apparently they got pretty good reviews. They were supposed to be pretty good. Well, as someone who personally bought all six of those on Blu-ray, yeah, I, I, I can attest to the fact that my children absolutely adored them. And I, and, and yeah, I, I knew something was up when, with the way that they had done the last one, I was like, wow, are they actually going to quit the, the franchise? And I guess they, they did end up quitting the franchise there. So now a part of, you know, we lost Toys R Us and my children just lost Disney tunes. So at least now we can commiserate in our misery together. Did they kill off Tinkerbell? No, and and that was the weird thing was that it's called Tinkerbell and the Legend of the Never Beast, but Tinkerbell is like in it for two minutes. It's about a, another fairy who goes and finds the Never Beast. So that was why I was like, "Oh wow, this really must be the end," which was disappointing because they were really good. I there was one the the like Tinkerbell and the and the Legend of the Blue Fairy or something like that that was oh the pirate Never the Beast. pirate fairy yeah one. the pirate fairy yeah. Yeah. yeah which was really cool because um it it also started shunting off to the side of Tinkerbell but it actually introduced James Hook and kind of and you get to see the dynamic of where James Hook comes from from a from a very young man and so it was really neat. To see where they were. So it's like, wow, they're okay. So they're starting to branch away from Tinkerbell proper, but they're really coming up with interesting stories. And then when they did Never Beast, I was like, oh, wow, this is getting kind of, uh, and yeah, so I was a little concerned at that point, but it looks like that's what happened. So at least I know I have them all. So that's good. I have all the Tinkerbell ones. So yay. And my kids will be happy now that they know that they've got all the Tinkerbell ones. And they'll be sad knowing that they're only never becoming. Yeah. Yeah, just blame it on Mr. Tim. Mr. Tim is the bearer of bad news. Tell them that John Laster murdered Tinkerbell, and she cannot appear in any more Disney Toon films. Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. He screamed, I do not believe in fairies. She dropped dead, and that was the end of it. No, nothing? Robin <laughs> Robin Williams from Hook? That was, I know, that, was, that, that was definitely one of the more darker moments in, in Hook. <laughs> Because that that was very confusing for me. It's like, I don't get it. Why is the little one, like, sexually obsessed with Rob Williams? And just because he's annoyed with her sexual advances, she then dies, allegedly. I think you're confusing the first part of the movie with the last part of the movie. But, okay. Well, no, she turns into, like, a woman at the end. She does, but that was when he, that was after his three days, and he actually remembers being how to be pan and he remember and he reinvigorates himself and becomes the young pan again and forgets about his family and then when tinkerbell kisses him in the grown-up form he remembers his wife mora and his children and how he needs to go and rescue them 
Oh, that's right. And that's when the, when the thing she initially that she's comes in to pick him up. Yeah, and when she when she initially comes to pick him up to rescue his children, he's drunk and he thinks that he's seeing things and that's when he screams at her, I do not believe in fairies and then she falls down on the dollhouse and he has to clap to bring her back you know, air quotes, bring her back to life. Oh, that's right. When was the last time you've seen the movie? Um less than seven months ago. Okay. I want to say I want to say it was around January. Then I don't feel too embarrassed. Then, <laughs> <laughs> it's, why? Because I watch this movie at least annually. It's a good movie. I love it. It's a movie. very good movie. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's one of those th- it's one of those movies that is great for adults because it reminds you to spend time with your kids. And right. I don't give a shit. I fucking love that movie. And I I still even to this day to this day. All right. I am now officially an old man. I'm 41. And I still get a little choked up when Rufio dies. And he's like, I wish, I wish, I wish you could be my dad. <laughs> yeah. I can just hear you sobbing. Rufio. It's right. Rufio. Rufio. There's no, there's no clapping to bring you back to life. <laughs> that would have been, that would have been great. Like he was like, "Fuck, man, I, I was, I'm able to clap, I'm able to clap a little annoying ass Julia Roberts back to life." Uh, well, you did I it can't. again. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you just did it again. There's your show title. <laughs> no amount of clapping will bring Rufio back. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's great. All right, well, you know, I didn't think that we would be able to just do a one-movie episode and still have it be a normal length, but by God, we managed to do it, didn't we? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) So, should we go ahead and get to it? What do you say? Let's ramble on for another 30 minutes. Here we go, folks. It's the movie we all right this week's movie and again movie singular is sicario day of the soldado i know who you are you're the attorney whose family they killed not they my father and now you hunt them adios there's proof the cartel helped the terrorists get to the border the president's adding drug cartels to the list of terrorist organizations you can understand how that will expand our ability to combat them you want to see this thing through i'm gonna have to get dirty Dirty is exactly why you're here. You're gonna help us start a war. With who? Everyone. No rules this time. Your objective is to start a war between the Mexican cartels, not with the Mexican government. This girl was witness to the mission, correct? Yes, sir. We can't risk her falling into the wrong hands. Clean the scene. They want me to cut ties. You gotta get rid of her. 
I can't do that. Don't put me in that situation. You gotta do what you gotta do. I'm gonna need a strike team to a Blackhawks. Drones with attack capability. Where's the coup? Mexico. You have no reason to trust me. But trusting me is how you're gonna survive. Good luck. Luck doesn't live on this side of the border. All right, so this, of course, 2018 American action thriller film. It's actually directed by Stefano Solima and written by Taylor Sheridan. It's uh, produced, let's see, well, actually, I think executive produced by, oh. Denny Villeneuve. Yeah, Villeneuve came back as an executive producer. Yeah, it's definitely not directed by him. So... Yeah, but it still stars Benicio del Toro and Josh Brolin. We also have uh, Isabella Moner, Jeffrey Donovan, Manuel Garcia Ruflo, Catherine Keener, and even Matthew Modine. So, uh, yeah, basically what we have here is a suicide bomber uh, or bombing in Kansas City leads the government to start checking in on the cartels who they believe are smuggling uh, people over the border, they're, they're smuggling terrorists, whether knowingly or unknowingly, they're still smuggling terrorists over the border because using human trafficking is a lot more uh, productive for money and, and uh, a lot more profitable than drugs. And so they are unleashing Alejandro, uh, Alejandro Gillick, uh, Benicio del Toro, and Matt Graver, Josh Brolin, onto the cartels to basically get them to fight amongst each other, and then hopefully slow the pace of illegals coming in, and subsequently terrorists who would come in. Uh, shenanigans ensue, and the movie goes on. All right, so. I kind of have to, I, there's not really a good way to, to truly discuss this movie without spoilers, unfortunately. I will say, um, just up front, 3.25 out of 5. I mean, I liked it enough um, in terms of its acting, in terms of the espionage action, that it's passable. I mean, you know, I can say that I liked it, it's, but it's not that great. And here's why. So we're, we're getting into spoiler territory. Um Tim, did you want to go ahead and uh, do you want to like throw your your score in right quick, and then we can hash out spoilers, or do you want to do you want to come in on your own? My score is going to be three point seven five. It's okay. quickly. It's just not as good as the first movie, but at least it's something different. They're not just rehashing the first movie, but once you look past the facade of the glitz and the music and the cinematography that has just been rehashed from the first movie. There's not a whole lot of good story from beginning to end to support the film as a whole, but it's still, I thought a, a solid movie. So 3.75. Excellent. All right. I guess I'm being a little bit harder on it mainly because, um, with as slickly as it was produced, as slickly as it's as directed, um, the story for me just really isn't there. So what, uh, what this, what the heart and soul of the story is, is you're watching Alejandro more or less regain some semblance of his humanity. And what happens is, is they, the crux of the movie happens where they go in and, uh, kidnap a drug, a drug kingpin's daughter. And they set her up to be just this complete, um, 
uppity fucking bitch who thinks she's tough and knows that her dad is all-powerful, which lets her be a spoiled piece of shit. And yet she then very, very quickly learns how the world works and what it is that she's been shielded from. Um, when all their shit goes sideways, because the idea is to make it look like the cartels are fighting one another when it's really just Matt Graver and Alejandro. Um, well, Matt Graver basically points Alejandro and then says, okay, this is the direction we need you to go. You go do what you need to do. So Alejandro is killing, um, he's killing drug lawyers and stuff. And then uh, making it look like it's one cartel that's doing the drug war. And then the people, the, the most obvious drug cartel that would attack them, now they're kidnapping their daughter uh, to make it look like retribution. In reality, this is all completely sponsored by the United States, um, what they referred to as a false flag operation. So the the crux of the movie happens when they're secretly trying to drop off the kid back in Mexico cuz they've actually they they don't just kidnap her they they secret her out of the country and put her in a detainee facility in the US and then sneak her back in um the mexican police turn on them which then causes the actual crux of the movie to happen because the girl sneaks off in the firefight Matt has to go and report back and get them back, get his team back safely. They've just killed 30 some odd, you know, upwards of 20, 30 different Mexican officials on Mexican soil with U.S. guns. And um, Alejandro's got to go find her. Well, once shit goes to, once, you know, the shit hits the, the fan, well, the U.S. pulls out and they're like, look, you got to, you got to get your boy, tell him to disappear. And he's got to make the girl disappear too. Um, failing that, they want Matt to kill them both. And, and that's kind of where the movie really takes off. Sadly, this is now, well, it's not quite halfway into the movie, but it's definitely over a third into the movie. And so now you're watching how this thing is going to completely play out between these two guys who have 100% respect for one another. And yet, inadvertently find themselves on opposite sides of the same fight and now you're watching alejandro work you know kind of regain this one aspect of his humanity which is not letting this girl die because quite frankly she doesn't deserve it um but at the same time you're seeing the new alejandro form in this like and basically, what what turns out to be a glorified plot device made into the carrier of the franchise, uh, which is this um, kid named Miguel, who is played by, let me see here, Elijah Rodriguez. The whole aspect of his characterization and his whole, I mean, ultimately, it's a B-plot. Um, his whole arc, he plays it well. Again, it's well acted, but it doesn't make sense as to why he's there, um, until there's a brief meeting in the parking lot. The, uh, he's not paying attention where he's walking, and Alejandro and Matter are, are, happen to be in the same parking lot for another reason, and they almost hit him, and they, 
stare at each other, right? Alejandro stares at him. Miguel stares back. And as soon as you see that, you're like, okay, well, clearly this is going to be important. These two guys seeing each other. Um, and, and that literally plays into the third act of the movie. I mean, it is the whole third act that this kid Miguel saw Alejandro. And again, it just, and, and ultimately Miguel kind of becomes the key. Alejandro is going to use this key to create, I guess, ultimately the third movie. Um, but it's, it's just weak, weak storytelling. Um, and there's not really much of a reason for it to occur. You don't really see why Alejandro chooses her, chooses this girl, Isabella Reyes, or she's played by Isabel, again, Isabella Moner. Um, you don't really see what it is that makes her valuable to him. Especially when the offshoot occurs when he's got her on a ranch and there's deaf people there and Alejandro knows uh, sign language because his daughter, who was killed, uh, remember this is why he was recruited in the first movie because he's trying to make a comeback from after having his family killed. Um, this is supposed to be the touching thing, right? This reminds him of his family and whatever else and the simple life that they could have had, whatever air quotes. It's just the story isn't strong. The story itself is not strong in this movie. The acting itself is great. The direction is great. The production values are all really well done. Absolutely well done. I just, it's hard for me to buy in to the story. I, I like the characters themselves, but the characters aren't quite one-dimensional, but they're barely two-dimensional in a story of this caliber. And that's why I only gave it a 3.25, because everything it's got going for it are characters that were well done in the first movie that are still well done here. It's just the story doesn't seem to be doing anything. And it really is kind of left with a, I don't, where do they have to go? Um, is Alejandro going to try and go after Matt? Is he going to try and get Isabella out of Witsec? Um, does he know that Matt saved Isabella? So is there going to be this whole, you know, misunderstanding thing? And even then, that's weak. It's, it's just, it's just weak that, you know, that, that, and that's why I'm, I, I feel that I'm harder on the movie than Tim. Tim's absolutely right about everything that he said, but I don't know. Tim, what, what, what do you think? Where your, where's your head at, man? Well, I'm actually changing my score to a 3.5 because I've been trying very hard uh, not to do quarter stars anymore. And how I, I forget that the first half of the movie, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, or at least the first act of the movie I thoroughly enjoyed. But there were way too many times, especially in the last act of the movie, where I kept scratching my head and wondering why they went the filmmakers why they went down that particular path and or i guess i should say the writer the screenwriter sheridan what denny villeneuve was able to achieve with the first sicario was something special and exciting 
And aided by Taylor Sheridan's surprisingly not too preachy screenplay and Johan Johannesson's haunting score and the wonderful cinematography provided by Roger Deakins, Villeneuve established a dark mood and heavy, unsettling presence, solidifying his talent of luring an audience into his movies and holding them there until he chooses to turn the audience loose. The execution of the original Sicario made for a highly entertaining and absorbing experience. Sicario, Day of the Soldado, maintains Taylor Sheridan's writing credit and Johannesson's score, but substitutes Denny Villeneuve's craftsmanship with the Italian director Stefano Solima, who did manage to put out a solid sequel that ultimately fails to match the original. Day of the Soldado's first act is a wonderful piece of heart-pounding cinema, utilizing the intense score and other aesthetics established within the 2015 film. The first act does provide the audience with a different story in a different direction to take these characters in, but it still relies on those same aesthetics. And relying on those same aesthetics from the first film is what keeps Day of the Soldado in shallow water. The flick destabilizes early in the second act when it becomes ever more apparent that there is nothing compelling underneath the familiar facade. Though the performances are top-notch, especially Benicio Del Toro and Isabella Monero's performance. Isabella Monero plays the, the young girl, the daughter of the drug lord. But neither the script nor the direction elevates those performances into a story that should floor the audience and keep them breathless until the credits finally do roll. One of the main reasons why this doesn't work is because once the audience gets past the repetitive heavy music and the jolts of too-close-to-home terror, the audience begins to wonder, what is this film trying to say? What are the filmmakers trying to achieve? What kind of what are what is the story trying to tell us? Are we forever to be frightened of Mexico and its drug cartels? Is it telling us to do something about the border? Like there's no agenda, but it feels like there should be. Because of how the movie is structured and what the movie chooses to focus on. Unfortunately, I'm a big uh, I'm not unfortunately a big Taylor Sheridan fan, the screenwriter, but unfortunately this is one of his weaker screenplays. He, of course, wrote the wonderful Hell or High Water. He wrote and directed Wind River. He wrote the first Sicario. Uh, and currently he wrote and I think also directed the Yellowstone TV series that, with Kevin Costner. So I don't know how that one is. But in relation to his film credits... This is definitely his weakest. Because the characters, this could also be a directing issue. I mean, this could also be Stefano uh, Solima's problem. The important character moments rely on very unstable and forced scenes. Like what Matt was saying earlier about when Alejandro and Miguel first see each other in that mall parking lot. The payoff of that just doesn't make any sense. They're at the end of the movie when Miguel is all tatted up and looks 
like, a, you know, what you would think of a Mexican typical gang member, just tatted up with crazy teardrop tattoos and gun tat, you know, whatever, web tattoos. When Alejandro approaches Miguel at the end, he confirms that the, the boy wants to be a soldado, if I remember correctly. Well, where that is in the movie, that's supposed to be an oh moment. Like, oh, so this is where this movie is going towards. But given what happened when the same boy shot <laughs> Benicio del Toro, I'm not too sure where this relationship happened. Like, there needs to be more context for that ending to make sense and not come across as some kind of goofy little Marvel tease that doesn't really mean anything at this moment. And also like the Alejandro knowing sign language because of his daughter. All right, man. I mean, convenience, definitely. But of course, I give it a 3.5 out of 5, like what I said earlier, that uh, during the movie, during the last half, I kept thinking about the issues, but looking back on the movie, right after seeing it, that's why I originally gave it a four, because I kept remembering how surprising that terrorist scene was within the first 10 minutes or so. It's a pretty ballsy scene for even, even for a movie like this. And it was highly effective. A couple people actually left the screening because it was too much for them. If you liked the first one, I think you'll at least like this one. Your life isn't going to be changed, but that's okay. Movies are made to entertain. This one will entertain you. 3.5 out of 5 for me. There you go. All right. And just to give you an idea of where we were at from the first movie, I went back and looked up our scores. Um, um, Tim, you gave it a 4.75, the original Sicario, and I gave the original Sicario back in 2015 a 3.75. So there you go. It's a dip in quality for both of us. So next week, that does bring us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be Ant-Man and the Wasp and The First Purge. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to have those two movies. We'll also have some more news for you next week as our bonus segment. And without further ado, I guess it is time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! You want some advice, Miss Bracken? It's Lynn. Miss Bracken, don't ever try to fucking bribe me or threaten me, or I'll have you and Patchett and shit up to your ears. I remember you from Christmas Eve. You have a thing for helping women, don't you, Officer White? Maybe I'm just fucking curious. You say fuck a lot. You fuck for money. There's blood on your shirt. Is that an integral part of your job? Yeah. Do you enjoy it? When they deserve it. Did they deserve it today? I'm not sure. But you did it anyway. Yeah. Just like the half dozen guys you screwed today. <laughs> well, actually, it was only two. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information, Superhighway, and track down Tim on Twitter if 
that's your heart's desire. And of course, as always, don't forget to favorite us on iTunes and or follow us on iTunes and favorite us on Stitcher Radio and track us down on the old SoundCloud and all the other podcast services we are on. And of course, if you'd like to support the show, you can do that by going on over to Patreon, checking us out there. And so until next week, this is Matt saying the thanks to Catherine Keener. I get to say this. I know many great actors who have small heads. Take your cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, farewell, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.